We're joined by Father Jacob Siemens, priest of St. Theodore and St. Tylo's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales. He edited Eastern Christian Approaches to Philosophy, wrote The Christology of Theodore of Tarsus, and most recently published a catechetical work, Orthodox Basics. Welcome to Forms, Father. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Before we begin, I thought I'd ask you a personal question. I understand mm -hmm. you've recently joined uh, Notre Archevêché. So what brought you to Orthodoxy and Rue Daru specifically? Well, that's a wonderful question and one that I actually get asked, um, not least because Rue Daru's presence here in the UK is fairly minimal. In the first instance, Orthodoxy, uh, because really I started to fall in love with it um, when I was first studying for the Anglican priesthood in Montreal back in the uh, early and mid-1990s. Um, I came from Winnipeg, Canada originally, um, where Orthodoxy is a presence. If you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, a lot of those people are actually Winnipeggers, believe it or not. And, uh, and the north end of the city, it could be said, is, is uh, dotted with onion domes because of the strong, particularly Ukrainian presence there. Some of which, of course, is Greek Catholic, as I, I, I understand well now, but at the time would have just seen all as um, a manifestation of an Eastern Christianity, which the majority of my, my friends uh, would not have known much about. In any case, when I moved to uh, Montreal to uh, continue reading theology, um, as I say, in preparation for, for ordination, I was working at a bookstore. My manager was uh, uh, an Orthodox priest. And um, simply by being surrounded by both conversation and um, source material, i.e., you know, many of the books that were being published by St. Vlad's, um, I uh, became utterly enamored and, in fact, started my exploration of moving into Orthodoxy as early as that. So after that, it was a, a journey through the Anglican Church. And uh, at one point, I made what I would describe as a significant mistake, um, thinking that I could have my cake and eat it by being Orthodox in communion with Rome. And so when I left the Anglican altar, it was for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, but it um, not long thereafter became apparent that, well, I was um, deceived, uh, whether by me or by um, circumstance, I don't know. That's uh, um, for later discernment. But uh, when that became clear, um, and I knew I had to move on, uh, it was to, to orthodoxy. So uh, Ruderu beckoned simply because um, I spoke with the, well, he's currently uh, on sick leave, but the, the dean for the um, archdiocese here in the United Kingdom. We were talking about uh, developing some theological resources. At the end of the conversation, he asked how I was. And uh, because at the time I was unhappily still a member of the uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, um, I dumped it all on him. And he said, well, look, if you want to talk more, um, give me a ring. So I took him up on that, put it all to him again. And um, he spoke with uh, Metropolitan Jean, who said, subject to all due diligence checks, um, he would be happy to receive me. And uh, there's much more to it than that, but uh, that's the, the happy story of how I came to not just be Orthodox, but uh, a member of the Archdiocese. I'm, I'm happy to uh, have met you and have this connection. And I think going through your books, it was really interesting because a lot of the things that you're discussing and, you know, opening up and analyzing, etc., are issues that are 
critically important today. I mean, you have mm. this book about catechism. What would you, how would you esteem the general state of Christian understanding of our own religion, both within the archdiocese and in the wider Christian world? Oh, gosh. I mean, this is probably one of the most fundamental questions we face from um, a missiological point of view, but equally just from a pastoral point of view. There is so much to know. And by that, I do not mean things to know in some dry, unspiritually informative way, but rather stuff to know that is fundamentally enriching to the life of prayer that is the Orthodox life. And people don't have that. Mm. I mean, I will say that I see it underpinning the life of, for example, our archdiocese better than I have seen it perhaps in past communities of which I've been a part. But knowing what we do and why we do it, knowing what underpins our faith in terms of you know, our fundamental experience of God, God as love, you know, um, all of these things are, are so often missing. And I think it's why we become vulnerable, our young people especially, but people in general become vulnerable to, to um, the discouragement of the radical atheism we've seen in the Anglo world for the last 20 years. They become vulnerable to um, uh, well, you know, as we say in, in, in our Orthodox prayers, the noonday devil, but except that it lasts beyond noonday, right? It, it takes people away and sees them drift off into despondency. And uh, it's something that I think can be best combated by uh, prayer and pedagogy together, by prayer and good teaching, which isn't a matter of um, you know, simply rolling out the old list of propositions. I can't stress that enough. It's a matter of saying, what are your questions? Let's meet those questions and draw them out, look at their implications, and actually seek answers that are satisfying. I'm going to sound like I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but to me, that is the most important feature of the pastoral life because there is so much disingenuity, so much potential for um, simply telling people like it is without giving them a chance to stretch and exercise their own existential questions. And how much do we betray them when we do that? I mean, it's not good enough just to say that, oh, your loved one died, um, say this prayer. Yes, save the prayer. But it is important to enter into that place where the person is when they suffer. We don't have a lack of uh, religious data, so to speak. You know, we're all hooked into a 24 7 uh, global database. We can yeah. retrieve the data anytime. That's not the difficulty. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I think, um, you know, turning towards your work on St. Theodore of Tarsus, who, for those unfamiliar, is a 7th century. Greek uh, particular influence in uh, Great Britain and in Western, the far Western, I guess you would say, inheritance of Christianity. Part of his mission, as you expose in your book, had to do with dealing with a lot of errors that had cropped up in Britain. What was the condition of Britain when uh, Theodore showed up? It was really quite disparate. I mean, when you consider the fact that the Anglo-Saxon sort of part, what we call England very roughly, 
uh, was divided into a number of kingdoms, some of which were more recently Christianized than others, but all of which had only been Christian, you know, for, for the last hundred or so years, uh, amidst which you have this sort of Celtic settlement, which is, um, you know, which has inherited an earlier Christianity, likely brought there by by uh, the Roman presence earlier and and, uh, and with curious habits and orientations. So, for example, it was less, less episcopally oriented and more abbatially oriented, meaning more based on the monasteries and the monastic life. And uh, this is probably nowhere more um, manifest than in, in the fact that the Synod of Whitby, which took place in 663, was even necessary. The Synod of Whitby, for those who don't know, was called by the Abbess Hilda. Uh, Whitby is in Yorkshire, an absolutely uh, breathtaking, uh, breathtaking place on the, the north coast, uh, north uh, uh, east coast of England. But um, she called the Synod in order that the various ecclesiastics might come together and decide once and for all on a common date of, of Easter. And they went with, ultimately at the Synod, they went with the Roman calculation, as opposed to these various um, sort of local uh, calculations. And so this is what Theodore sort of enters into. I mean, he arrives only five years after the Synod. He immediately goes on a visitation of, of the land under his, uh, under his pastoral staff. He encounters, and I love this story, but uh, somebody like St. Chad, who was of dubious ordination, because of the confusion around sort of Celtic practice versus uh, continental Roman practice. And um, in their first encounter, Theodore is forced to depose him completely, to which Chad responds by saying, well, I'm glad you did that because I never thought I was worthy of uh, being a bishop in the first place, which Theodore responds to by saying, in which case you're the perfect bishop and reordains him from ground up. So, uh, um, you know, you, you get this this poor um, but humble man sort of uh, stripped of orders and reinstated immediately, sort of a wonderful and holy confusion, but uh, one to which he has to bring all his um, administ- administrative uh, skill to bear in order to bring it into some semblance of order. And I guess we should we should step back and say, you know, who is Theodore of Tarsus? We're talking about somebody who's born, as I said, at the beginning of the seventh century in you know, the Levant, well, not the Levant, but in uh, Cilicia, and mm-hmm. who's, you know, traveling in uh, Edessa, in Antioch, probably, in Constantinople, and Rome, and is finally sent, you know, because he's an expert in calendrical matters, because he's a holy monk, because he's wise and learned in various traditions, ends up being made bishop of this uh, this far-flung corner of the world. What do you think his perception of his own mission was based on all the, the reading you've done? And like subjectively, what would you, what would you take well, to be his view? I feel deep sympathy for him. And I don't know to what degree it's just pure projection. But I think actually on some sound academic bases, I think there's, willing, there, there's good reason to think that he was a very human character who was just kind of an intellectual kind of a dilettante like he he picked up stuff mm-hmm. um wherever he was and and that includes languages um another thing i can sympathize with and i'm just going to put a little footnote in, on this conversation by saying that 
um, some skepticism had been expressed uh, around the project of identifying certain texts with him based on the linguistic question, because I think there's some sense sometimes on the part of modern people who are classically trained in languages that the same approach to linguistic perfection must be applied to the ancients. Mm. But there's no reason at all why somebody from Cilicia couldn't sort of dabble in all of the languages that he was surrounded by. And I, I say that as somebody who had the uh, the privilege and delight of living in Montreal for a long time and, and now lives in a bilingual country, Wales, where, you know, you do dabble in languages. You pick up vocabulary, you, you learn basic phrases. And I think it's entirely reasonable to see Theodore as one of those characters that just kind of embraced where he was and dabbled and picked things up. And But one of the things I think he must have picked up and, and carried with him to the shores of Kent when he arrived was the memory of having stood in Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople. You know, it would have been by then, what, a hundred-ish years old as, as a temple. And um, he would have known its grandeur, its splendor, its, um, its, its awesomeness. And then he would have landed on the shores of windswept Kent um, long before it was dubbed the Garden of England and thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> what have I arrived mm -hmm. at? I mean, if, you, if you've ever looked at the, the parish church at Escombe, which is um, about 15 minutes away from, from Durham in, the count, in County Durham, uh, it's, a, it's a Saxon, um, some have argued possibly a pre-Saxon building, but very humble, rough stone mm -hmm. church. And you can see that even later Saxon works. Now, if if they were building St. Lawrence in Bradford on Avon in the 9th or 10th century, what was Theodore facing in his mind by comparison with what he had come from? Must have been utterly overwhelming or perhaps underwhelming. But uh, I think he, he seems to have just embraced it and carried on with the sense of theological and spiritual mission, which he clearly took very seriously and never despaired over. Because, I mean, you don't, you don't run a successful classroom, which is attributed to him by Bede, by Althelm, by various um, uh, insular ecclesiastics, uh, if, you're, uh, if you've given up or if you're despondent over your lot. It's interesting also to think about the character of such a person. We have uh, sort of stereotypes about the Middle Ages, etc. But when I think about this late antique, early medieval period, I really think it resembles our own era. And mm. uh, somebody like Theodore is really a cosmopolitan figure. I think of Chrysostom's teachings about how the Christian has no fatherland. I mean, mm -hmm. he's moving from place to place to... Syria to, you know, Italy to uh, England, etc. It makes me think of other figures like John Cassian, who, I mean, Cassian's like roaming all over the place, you know, mm -hmm. Jerome's moving all over. The These guys are just moving everywhere. They're doing everything. They're picking up languages. They're doing this and that. And it doesn't seem to bother, at least not from reading your book. I didn't get any impression that Theodore was bothered by saying, okay, you know, I got to get retonsured in the Western style and blah, blah, blah. It's like, whatever, you know. There's something of the universality of the church where you have influences from Irenaeus of Lyon to uh, Ephraim, the Syrian, etc., coming together. And it just seems 
it seems natural in a way that today, at least when I talk to people, it doesn't seem natural. Like if I bring up, you know, Abba Isaac of Nineveh, people are like, who is this guy? Who is this mm -hmm. weird figure we've never heard of? Who is Didymus the Blind? Who is Ishadad of Merv? Who are these people? They're just not known. But I feel like a Theodore actually had a broader view of multiple traditions, multiple authentic traditions within the universal church that just doesn't exist in the vast majority of, and I'm not even just talking about lay people, I'm talking about, you know, clerics and stuff. People don't know anything about Syriac Christianity. They don't know anything about, you know, who is Ephraim, right? Mm. Yeah, no, I, not only do I agree, I think that Theodore sort of, um, in his own person draws these things together um, they become manifest in his own uh, pastoral and intellectual approach. Um, but equally, I think he represents somebody who can well serve to remind us of not just the universality of our faith, but equally the, the fundamental connections that hold us together across the Mediterranean, across the world. Um, you know, that's more than a romantic notion. So, Consider the fact that Theodore was certainly, and I'm going to say that, and if a scholar wants to take me on on that, I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to, to put up the dukes. But um, he was certainly at the Lateran Council of 649 dealing with the heresy of monothelitism. Who was the guiding light or the leading light at, at uh, the Lateran Council of 649? Maximus the Confessor. Both of their names appear in the Acta. Now, this means that an obscure, a seemingly obscure character like Theodore has made a direct personal connection with a saint that many of us talk about, even if we haven't read his work, um, with, with great sort of uh, admiration, mm -hmm. Maximus the Confessor. And you think, actually, no, you know, these were not just sort of rarefied abstract characters that sort of float like satellites around the church. They were actual sort of fibers in the tapestry in which we wrap ourselves today. And, you know, these fibers were tightly woven. They were drawn together and uh, carried from one end of the Mediterranean world to the other. And this is what we inherit. And I think it's, it's utterly incredible. To what degree, I'm going to ask sort of a, a parallel question to what we've been talking about, which has to do with how we as contemporary people receive all of these people and all this history and all this theology. I have this sort of impression that the way the average Christians in the West today, at least in America, which I'm most familiar with, encounter theologians, for example, is as geniuses, is as singular figures who, you know, obviously they're reading the Bible and, you know, have some things in common. They believe in Jesus and God and the whole nine yards. But more or less, you know, you have your Augustine, you have Calvin, you have Luther, you have Zwingli, and all these figures are like individuals with their own perspective. And then there are a many, a crowd that kind of follows behind them, right? Whereas when I look at somebody like Theodore, I see a matrix of many figures who are all just sort of overlapping and interlocking. And that's not to say he doesn't have his own particular genius in a sense, but I don't think he's not like a thinker in some kind of Thomas Carlyle vision of a great thinker. He's a synthetic bringing together many strands. And I think that's kind of, at least for me, that's part of the power of uh, orthodoxy in general, at least of the more ancient forms of Christianity is this 
it's less about the genius of individual people and more the the synthetic outworking of the collective reflection. Do you think that's fair? Am I romanticizing that? You might be romanticizing, but if you are, it's a seductive vision that I've bought into entirely. Okay. I, 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 I can't agree more. I mean, the, and, and actually I would take the implications of what you've just said further and say that the authentic Christian experience must be more like that mm. and less like the alternative. I don't know what, how Calvin thought, like I, I haven't studied Calvin enough to know how did Calvin think about his own work, right? But it's clear that people today receive him as this sort of singular figure, you know? Yep. And, you know, yep. he has indebted, blah, blah, blah. We can do a biographical sketch. But when you look at somebody like Theodore, like in your book, your book is as much about Irenaeus and Ephraim as it is about Theodore. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Absolutely it yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of the... Um, of, of drawing it forward, drawing the implications forward into the contemporary Christian world as you just have. Um, but as you say it, it immediately strikes a chord with me. And I think that it's it's an authentic form of Christianity that permits us to interpret or enables us to interpret the work of the, you know, the, the, the Matushka during the Soviet period, mm-hmm. who is not... Um, a theological genius, but rather is a spiritual mother in a community that keeps the faith going when it is otherwise under assault or under oppression. And it it raises up um, her as a part of the body that recognizes, you know, that, that intrinsic value as being on par with the value of the genius and the value of the you know, the, the person who's simply standing before the votive stand and crossing mm-hmm. themselves, it all kind of matters. And I don't say that just to sort of, you know, um, I, I hope it doesn't sound patronizing. I mean it quite, quite truly because it, it authenticates the, the breadth and the depth of the Christian experience. And Theodore is a prime figure for exemplifying that. It also gives a lie to the sort of ideal of Christendom, right? If you're, saying, you know, I grew up in Tarsus and then I'm going to go to Edessa to some foreign... I mean, in a way, it's a different tradition, the Syriac tradition from that of the Greeks. I mean, obviously, there's borrowing and communion, but it really is different. I mean, you talk about this, the the Semitic emphasis, the differences of exegesis. Why don't you, you sketch for us some of these influences that we've been alluding to? So let's start with Ephraim. What do you think is the contribution of Ephraim to Theodore's worldview? coming from this Syriac background? Well, one thing that uh, I think sticks out in my mind and, and which you'll probably nod your head at when I mention is is the whole sort of imagery of Christ the physician. Mm-hmm. Now, Ephraim we could describe as a poetic theologian. Um, there's a phrase I use um, in the book at some point. Uh, he expresses this odium grecorum, this, this sort of hatred for the Greeks, and, um, you know, it's clear that he's, uh, even as he's saying that, he's, he's drawing deeply from a Greek well. But um, his language is not the language of sort of philosophical theology, right? His language is that of the poet, the hymnographer. And he's describing the Garden of Paradise and sort of, well, you know, he is he entirely conscious of the sort of eschatological vision he's putting out? Has he plotted it all meticulously? I doubt it, 
but his his instincts as expressed in those words are such that he's he's painting a picture of the paradisical state from which humanity yeah. emerges and to which humanity is called to return in in a very you know picturesque and wonderful way it's very but, unhermeneutical it, absolutely you know, it's not <laughs> absolutely. very hermeneutical that's that's one of the glories of going to the the syriac tradition is it's kind of this well of poetic power in a, in otherwise what can be rather you know as you said earlier quite dry stuff you know yeah yeah and and um you know it's in that respect i mean i i might be stretching the 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 plausibility of of these concepts but we talk of antiochian exegetical mm-hmm. style or exegetical tradition uh, as compared to for example the alexandrian the alexandrian uh, approach was uh uh more symbolic you know mm-hmm. we see that exemplified by the work of origin uh the antiochian is more sort of uh literal when they sort of permit comparisons they're always sort of you know um drawn from the old testament mm-hmm. um these these styles although i wouldn't want to overemphasize them because it you know it makes it seem as if they they represent hard categories where you know the these parties and schools were absolute they're not however it's fair to say that one is a more philosophical approach and the other is a more gritty sort of earth up approach when it comes mm-hmm. to reading the texts and um that's that's reflected in 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 um in Ephraim's um own poetry um and there's a good deal of spiritual instinct there i think shaped by the fact that uh, there would have been sort of a jewish diaspora and and uh you know a a, a tradition that was different from that which would have been found in the the lower right corner of the mediterranean you know as you as you mm. move around into into egypt it's also these are debates that are not dissimilar to debates we have today about you know secular literary theory you know how do we no, approach in, texts you know yeah and it's it's, it's, it's there's a lot of gray area to which uh, many figures like if you think about somebody like chrysostom you know he's clearly taking from both streams they're like pick mm. and choose what he wants from both you know and it works because he has the kind of ability to do the Greek rhetorical style and kind of pull it all together. Yeah. Although of course he's um, typically um, formed in the sort of the Antiochian sort of uh, more literal exegetical tradition. Um, you're, you're quite right in your description of him. So we have this impact from, you know, Theodore's time formative years, really his younger days among the Syriac church. And I was alluding to the comparison with your uh, Soviet example where, you know, clearly there's some chaos going on in Syria. It's no longer really a, a great place to be, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, I don't remember. Do you talk about this in the book? Do we know why he left Edessa? Was it because no, of think... warfare or something like that? I'm it, I'm vague on this detail now. Yeah, it's it's a bit muddy. I mean, the, the mid, sorry, the, the early to mid 7th century is muddy insofar as you have sort of this last gasp of the Persian Empire, um, and then its retreat. You have its um, swift replacement from 632 on by the emergence of uh, Islam from the Arabian Peninsula. They very quickly push north, and um, you know between these two uh, sort of uh, catalysts to change, um, we just see Theodore seemingly drift from. 
that part of the world, the Euphrates, sort of the Mesopotamian part of the world to, to Constantinople. Um, so yes, we can imagine that it is a cause uh, for his migration. For but, whatever um, reason, he ends up in Constantinople. And then for whatever reason, yeah. he ends up in Italy. And for whatever reason, he's chosen to come to England. But one of his other primary sources is St. Irenaeus. So can you speak a little bit about that aspect? Because it seems a little bit, on, you know, at first blush, why would Irenaeus of Lyon have such an impact on Theodore of Tarsus? They seem quite distant, you know, compared to somebody like Ephraim, who's next door, so to speak. When you start to look at Irenaeus's work, like why do we have certain texts from him only preserved in Armenian? You know, what is this yeah. influence of Irenaeus in like the the far east, so to speak? What is, how do we understand that? Yeah, though that's a that's an excellent question and one that is unresolved. And um, I, I can speculate, and I probably will because it's it's amusing. But um, the fact is, when I first came upon that question, because you can see. Uh, vestiges of Irenaean thought in um, in the work of Ephraim. I mean, Ephraim makes uh, certain what I'll call Irenaean assumptions, but um, in conversation with um, the wonderful Sebastian Brock, professor uh, of Syriac from from Oxford, um, there is um, there's no evidence that um, against the Heresies, for example, had been translated and was available in Syriac by uh, by Ephraim's time and. Uh, now, I think we have to suspect either it existed in Syriac or else, or else the motifs that emerged from Irenaeus's slightly unwieldy uh, work had a huge effect, well beyond um, even the, the, the language barrier. Certainly, you see those words, as we well know, everybody always cites uh, Athanasius when they when they give expression to what uh, Norman Russell calls the exchange formula. God became man in order that man might become God. Which scandalizes um, people to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? I actually used it in a lecture I was giving in Montreal once, and one of the uh, audience members uh, shook his fist in disgust and said that that was, you know, it sounded like new age theology to him. I said, well, if by new age, you mean second century, then sure, I'll give that to you. You know, we should but, pause there because this is actually something that comes up quite a lot. I've had people, people who are like very well educated in theology and things tell me that this is, this is bad. And if Athanasius said it, then he's wrong, you know? Mm. And I, I, what, what I think people don't understand is that this perspective isn't some weird thing about Athanasius or it's not like Irenaeus came up with it. And then, you know, Athanasius picked up on it and it's kind of a, you know, a fringe thing. This is like core and central doctrine to the whole rest of Christian history. And if people don't know about it today, it's, it's a sort of accident of, I don't know, a a deformation of the tradition that they've received. Is that unfair? No, not at all. Fundamentally and absolutely uh, you're, you're right. Um, to the point where I would say if I was to, now it could be somebody's already done this work, and if they have, I hope they get in touch with you. But um, the, I, I've often thought in terms of taking that theme further and exploring why it becomes so uh, much a part of the heart of Eastern thought and unquestionably exists in the West, in the Latin West, but does not take on the same weight. So, for example, and I love citing this, but the traditional um, uh, prayer at the co-mixture, when, when the priest and the 
traditional Latin rite, places a drop of water into the uh, chalice before taking it to the altar at the offertory. He, he, he says, O God who didst create and yet more wonderfully renew the dignity of the substance of man, grant that by the mystery of this water and wine, we may become partakers of his divinity, who didst vouchsafe to become a partaker of our humanity. Mm. Now, if that isn't Irenaeus, to the word, I don't know what is. Mm. And yet, you do not see a development of that idea, that exchange, into deification, into theosis, the way you do among the Greeks and 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 even further afield. I have um, a know, special uh, interest in um, John Scotus Eriugena. Oh, yes. And Eriugena is a weird, exceptional figure where he does do all these things. He's like fully aware of all of this. Hmm. But when he makes his intervention, for example, I'm working on an article about this right now. When he makes his intervention with Gottschalk, the French bishop, bishops don't know what to make of the intervention. They're kind of right. baffled and confused. And the fact that, you know, uh, Eriugen is the favorite of the king kind of insulates him from any hmm. con negative consequence. But they just take right. his work on uh, divine predestination and just kind of Thanks, but no thanks. You know, mm. we're just going to leave this and we're going to make a vague statement that doesn't make anybody happy and we're going to imprison Gottschalk in a monastery and now it's all, you know, settled or whatever. And I just, right. I, I think about that now. Why don't the bishops accept what Eriugena is saying? Why mm. doesn't Eriugena have the legacy that Aquinas or somebody has? Because I don't think Aquinas is, you know, mentally superior to Eriugena. It's not like he's so much more brilliant than Eriugena was. So mm. what is it about what is it about this particular teaching that Eriugena was transmitting, as you say, from the Celtic tradition back into Western you know, continental Europe? What's the disconnect there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have sort of romantic answers that I, that I uh, sort of love to proffer in my own mind. I'm very hesitant to, to uh, make them public because I'm sure that they could be um, easily dismantled. But if I were to put forward a hypothesis, I, th I think there must be something in the Eastern uh, intellectual soil. And by something, I mean something tangible. There, there must be some kind of philosophical idea that, that reacts with those words, those sort of words of exchange, that means the plant that emerges looks different to the plant that emerges in the West. Oh, it might literally be a sort of cultural, linguistic sort of a convergence there, an issue about it being expressed in Latin, per se. Could be, could be, could be, um, absolutely. Um, but I think, honestly, it will require more more exploration. We do see that does... with the whole Trinity issue, you know. Mm -hmm. We see that in the several issues. What about the reverse question when it comes to the, these things of Iron Eyes that are inherited by so many? To what degree do you think that can be traced backwards through like Ignatius, Polycarp, John? I think... Ironus is from Smyrna, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So to what degree is this, is what Ironus is saying, uh, his own developed theology versus something that he's synthesizing from his milieu? I wish I was more adept as a philosophical historian, but I think that when you look at, I mean... Polycarp is a disciple of John the Apostle. Yeah. John the Apostle's gospel is the one, you know, that is clearly distinct from the other three. And, and John um, was a kind of stupid fisherman, according to Chrysostom. You know, he's just a rustic yeah. 
who, who was so base, he was almost an irrational animal, like the fish that he was working with. And somehow he has this teaching that overcomes all the philosophers, right? Mm. And that reminds yeah. me so much of this thing from Ephraim about, you know, I wonder to what degree is, is this, are these ideas being transmitted from particular people? Or is this just part of the background tradition that would have come from John? You know, mm. the, the Syriac mentality is the same as the one of Irenaeus because it's coming from the same source. Is that, am I over, am I drawing a genealogy that's uh, unsupportable? No, I'm fascinated by this. And in fact, I mean, you're sort of provoking for the thought in me by, by saying those, uh, by making those statements. The, the idea, I mean, I suppose I've always been satisfied to assume that Irenaeus is this bright light, but a bright light that sort of appears because of the context from which he emerges. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like any bright light exists entirely on its own, but um, for whatever reason, his words carry a force that, for example, his contemporaries or even his predecessors don't. I mean, you don't... You, I, mean, I mean, he's not he is, dissimilar to Theodore. He's a Greek coming to the West. I mean, Cassian is exactly. the same way, right? You got yeah. Cassian, you got Theodore, you've got Irenaeus. I mean, I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting, but these are like the big yeah. three in my mind of bringing the tradition westward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Along with yeah, the yeah. blessed apostle himself, of course. You get, um, you know, the, I, I come back to the fact that it's in Irenaeus that you find the words you do first, the the exchange, the words of exchange, and those are in the preface to the fifth book of Against the Heresies. Prior to him, you don't actually find anything similar. You can see how you can sort of see the the ethos, or mm. you know, feel the ethos as it emerges from from texts of a similar uh, period and 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 area. But um, he's at least the beginning of the documented record of this kind of a notion at the very least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it would just take uh, further textual work really to, to build a picture of how, how he ends up being the, the, the uh, sort of particular uh, that emerges from a general. And talk uh, more about that, flesh that idea out for people that aren't familiar. So for Irenaeus, the way salvation works is that Christ takes on and recapitulates all of human history and thereby alters it right almost and consequently gives us almost every sort of poetic motif of 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 uh of the middle ages uh in terms of how we describe so much in terms of the life of christ i mean this is going back to the issue of catechesis because what does god do on the cross i mean it's a latin uh holy week right this is widely debated among people Absolutely. And when I tell people that, you know, God, uh, Jesus came to liberate us from this evil world, people look at me like I'm giving some different religion, you know. What is it about this evil world? I mean, that's Pauline language, right? What is it about recapitulate? What does it mean to recapitulate all of human history? This just isn't, at least in America, at least in the sort of evangelical milieu that I grew up in, this isn't something that people talk about. Like, what do you mean recapitulates all of human history? Maybe my uh, my own background was was more liberal in the true sense of that word, um, because none of this came across as scandalous, but it always came across as enlightening. Mm. And so the the notion of recapitulation is, uh, for those who don't know, the the idea that well, it's the Greek anekephaliosis. It, it almost literally means reheading. So 
you look at Adam and Eve as the first heads of the human race. And they lay down the template by which we all then operate. Because they brought death and exile upon themselves, that, that's part of the template. And so when we take on our, uh, or when we, we manifest, you know, our particular version of the template, we're manifesting the same sort of errors that have been introduced to it. So um, that runs across the course of our lives from the moment of conception, the, 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 um, the fetus is already moving towards its own end, mm -hmm. but that's not what God desires for his creation, for his children. He did not create for death. And therefore something needs to happen in order to reset the template. Now that's already a controversial point, which to you mm -hmm. and I, as part of our tradition, we just assume that, of course, you know, it says, uh, in wisdom, God is not the maker of death. So, of course, you know, death came uh, through sin and sin through one man, right? But a lot of people believe that death was created by God and that there was death even in the Edenic state, right? So this, cosm this cosmic picture of death being the sort of accidental entry into human history is simply not known by many people. So when you add that like onto this, this issue of recapitulation, it starts to sound like a completely different religion, and maybe it is, from what people are familiar with. You're quite right. I mean, the one, the one um, sort of condition I would put on what you just said is the fact that if you look at the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 articles, I cannot remember which article it is, mm. but they can be accused of being overly Calvinistic by sort of Anglo-Catholics, for example. Yet, the article on predestination begins with the words, predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God. Mm -hmm. It actually kind of lays the groundwork for what you just identified as being, you know, uh, you know, of the essence of our tradition, yeah. uh, of the Orthodox tradition. So there is some notion within sort of a, a broader Christian um, uh, uh, vision that, that, uh, you know, God creates for life. And, um, and ultimately, then, to, to return to Irenaeus, you know, we recognize that the, we break the template. We break that, that uh, created purpose. So then coming back to recapitulation, it takes only, only the, the, the logos that takes on flesh, only the word of God taking on flesh um, uh, makes it possible for that template to, to sort of uh, find its recreation, its reestablishment in perfect order, as opposed to this imperfect order. And so Christ then moves through every stage of human experience and, and human existence. So um, it, Irenaeus would attribute to Jesus, you know, infancy, childhood, um, to use, you know, our uh, medical biological terms, puberty, teenage years, adulthood, and ultimately yeah. old age. That's symbolic, of course, because, you know, if, if Jesus was um, just, uh, you know, in his mid-30s when he's crucified, then it's not exactly old age by our standards. But it's that notion that he passes through these stages. Yeah, he of, reaches maturity. He reaches an adult yeah. state. Yeah. So, and it's then that he has experienced everything we can possibly experience. The only thing he hasn't given into is sin, and thereby he recapitulates, he reheads mm -hmm. each of those states and makes it possible for us now to 
um, to uh, you know live out our existence according to the new template. We've discussed the background of Theodore about his mm-hmm. influence from Syriac, Latin, Greek traditions coming into contact with Celtic traditions. In a way, he's one of these figures that really touches every corner of church tradition that existed during his time, right? Mm -hmm. But we haven't talked a lot about his impact. So the Venerable Bede writes about him, and he's, you know, honored in the the Church of England and the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. But we, we don't really have Theodore of Tarsus as a figure of equal standing with, you know, his, uh, his uh, peer at the time, Maximus Confessor, or with Irenaeus, or with Ephraim. What do you think, what's blocking the reception of Theodore? What's Theodore's impact, and why is he not so well known? That's a question I've asked myself numerous times. I mean, when you consider the fact that in, uh, at, the, at the time of the um, uh, Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Pope uh, wrote that he had hoped that his brother bishop and philosopher of Great Britain, Theodore, might attend the council uh, on the basis that he was the only living person who knew the monothelite question firsthand. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's really quite incredible. This means that, um, at least in the West, um, this figure is known and well-known enough that the Pope should have desired his attendance at the Sixth Ecumenical Council. Now, for whatever reason, he could have almost literally um, disappeared from our from from the history books after that. Um, even that quote is one that gets uh, dredged up, but is not one that's sort of plastered on on uh, you know the side of book spines, although it probably should be. Um, I think there are a number of reasons for it. One, I I called Theodore a bit of a dilettante earlier. I mean, he is not sort of this rigorous kind of bright light intellect as Maximus is, right? He is somebody, you call him a synthesizer. I love that because I think that's exactly what he was. He's he's drawing on knowledge and he's turning it into something he can communicate to the people under his care. We so have his penitential, you know, which there's like a Twitter right. account that tweets uh, random quotes from and often seems a bit uh, rigorous and harsh. This penitential <laughs> yeah. of Theodore. I actually spoke about the penitential at last year's meeting of the um, uh, uh, Fellowship of St. Alban and St. Sergius, because my take on the penitential, which is, for for listeners, one of the most enduring and obvious um, legacies that Theodore um, hands on, uh, it it bears his name. It's the Theodore, uh, it's the penitential of St. Theodore, and in it, the teachings and the words are attributed directly to him as recorded by one of his disciples. Now, um, the thing about those teachings is that, first of all, they, they draw heavily, almost exclusively, on Eastern fathers. Mm-hmm. Everything that Theodore has to say about sin and about repentance and reconciliation is based on, you know, Gregory Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, you know, Basil, uh, many others. I mean, those are just the obvious. The Cappadocians are easy to, to recall. But the fact is, it's a, a significantly Eastern um, piece of work. Having said that, its nature is fundamentally optimistic. 
let us consider although that that twitter account to which you refer actually i find humorous because they've actually got the wrong century listed as the <laughs> Um, and I, I wish they would change it. I sent them a message, but to no avail. Um, having said that, the um, the uh, you know, if you hold up the penitential teaching in Theodore's penitential against today's culture of condemnation, when people say the wrong thing um, or make the wrong joke at the wrong time, and it happens to get picked up by somebody's mobile phone. And they then get um, mm-hmm. uh, dismantled. Their entire lives get condemned and dismantled online. Um, we show far, far less mercy than is uh, than is manifest in that work. That work, in fact, presupposes that everything is forgivable. Mm-hmm. And if you read the penitential, I mean, it's full of sexual sins, the likes of which... Um, the internet um, couldn't have even envisaged, or if it did, only in the darkest corners. Yeah. Um, and and if you consider that these things were were imagined um, or heard by a, conf- a priest confessor, um, and that the priest confessor simply said okay, and then returned with a penitential judgment on them, that assumed forgivability. I think it's a remarkable piece. So it really depends on how you read it. It's also one of these areas that's kind of unusual because when it comes to pastoral concern, I mean, this is a domain for pastors. Usually people who are not pastors are not reflecting and thinking at great length about how do we tend to the flock because it's sort of an art of the people in this particular technical field of spiritual direction, et cetera, et cetera. And when you think about a philosopher, I mean, a lot of philosophers are not dealing with, you know, I uh, did something wrong with the animal in the barn type questions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not that gritty and concrete, you know. But if you think about it, such a man as Theodore, who has been all over the world, I presume, you know, maybe I presume too much. I don't think that uh, Rome of the seventh century was a particularly pristine place, you know. Mm. I don't think that Constantinople <laughs> at that time was particularly. Uh, utopian, you know, in terms of its social character, he's probably seen, heard, and I don't know what he's done, but he's familiar with the way of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And he's responsible for those people's souls. And he can't just give some kind of abstract, you know, teaching about the nature of sin, right? What, how do you actually address the real, the real sins of people, real people in front of you? You know, that's a, that's a difficult task. And I think it, it, it may, yeah. You, you, you've nailed it, really. I think it's never going to garner the same kind of glory that the sort of um, philosophical genius of, of Maximus is going to gain, yeah. right? And hence, you know, Theodore is, I mean, at the end of the day, he's a pastor, teacher, albeit a brilliant one, a pastor and a teacher in the furthest flung reaches of, of the known world at that time. Mm. And, um, and easy, therefore, to forget. Now, on top of that, you have a textual problem, and that is there is nothing other than the penitential really attributable to him. A couple of uh, uh, poems, um, um, some correspondence between him and Wilfred, 
uh, uh, the saintly Archbishop of, of York, who had been estranged from Theodore for a good many years of Theodore's own episcopate. Um, but, I mean, none of that lends itself to um, being able to nail down the thought of the man mm -hmm. until, I think it was 1993, um, Michael Lapage published the work, uh, the joint work of he and um, Bernard Bischoff, a paleographer, um, which was really the fruit of, of 60 years labor on the part of Bischoff. Bischoff had discovered in, I think it was Milan, a, a manuscript which included texts that were kept that referred on numerous points to Theodore. Mm -hmm. And he realized that these texts had come from Canterbury, that they were reflecting Theodore's teaching on various parts of scripture in the classroom. And I mean, this was exciting, but it wasn't announced until after the end of World War II. And so there's a, a famous paper in German in which Bischoff announces the existence of this manuscript. And it's then a further, what, 30, 40 years before it becomes an edition. And so that edition exists as the biblical commentaries of Canterbury, of the Canterbury of Theodore and Hadrian or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember what its proper title is. But simultaneous to the release of that, Jane Stevenson um, through a number of links that she herself makes, um, realizes that this hitherto anonymous text, and which is now, we now call the Liturculus Malalianus, um, could be in some ways measured against the concrete um, evidence that we now had in the form of the biblical commentaries. And um, not only do I think uh, ultimately um, her, her argument held water, I think it's it was a brilliant argument and in some ways ahead of its time because a lot of the evidence has only furthered what she was first laying down in her edition uh, called the Liturculus Malalianus in the School of Archbishop Theodore. And it was that text that I ended up um, writing about. In itself, it's not a work of brilliance, but there's something beautiful about it. I mean, essentially, you know, one could see it as Theodore sort of deploying um, some of his trans-Mediterranean formation to a kind of exegetical, almost whimsical exegetical work on the life of Christ. But in so doing, he's using um, the Malaline Chronicle from uh, um, about 50 years earlier than, than his own life. Uh, Chronicle is a, a historical text. It's just literally in this year, emperor so-and-so did this, mm -hmm. and then in that year, this happened. That, that's a chronicle. So he takes the, the chronicle originally composed by John Malalis and elaborates on it by um, elucidating the nature of Christ's life. And I think in that respect, it's incredibly insightful and mm. quite an exciting text to read. What do you, how would you summarize his Christology? We've had uh, Jordan Daniel Wood on the podcast to talk about Maximus Confessor and his Christology, other figures like Isaac of Nineveh in the past. What do you think is the Christology of Theodore, if you could put it in a, a paragraph? I could put it in one word, restoration, mm -hmm. the restoration of humankind. Theodore of Tarsus, I, I wrestled with that text for so long until I was on a coach ride over to Walsingham, which is a great Marian shrine here in, in Britain. I was on a coach ride and I was reading a paper and it, it was a paper about recapitulation, um, which was only coincident to 
what I was supposed to be doing on the on the Liturculus. And I went back to the Liturculus and counted the number of appearances in Latin of the word restoration or recapitulation. And it's a long time ago now, but let's say there was like 27 appearances mm-hmm. of this word. And I was overwhelmed. I thought, Theodore has a clear project here. And ultimately, when he talks about the restored face of humanity, um, he's talking about something that is akin to um, sort of the return of Adam and Eve to paradise, such as you find it described in in Ephraim's poetry. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite, it's quite a remarkable picture, one that's that's underrated, but one that... Uh, from a from a spiritual point of view, can bring great joy. You know, laying aside the academic uh, purpose. We've spoken before, also in the podcast with David Bentley Hart about apocatastasis, and it seems to me mm-hmm. that this there's two sorts of notions of restoration, which today we might want to draw some comparisons to, but that are actually have separate genealogies. Is that fair? They're actually distinct mm-hmm. notions. This restoration that uh, Theodore is talking about, or Ephraim's talking about is not the same thing as the apocatastasis of the Egyptians, or is it? It's easy to um, connect them, but it's not the same, not deliberately the same in any case. Because you were talking about the restoration of humanity or of the human image, right? That's right. Which is separate from the idea of the restoration of the cosmos, per se. These are, te- these are distinct notions. Absolutely, but... Now I could just leave that sentence yeah. there and allow the listener to uh, interpret. The thing is, I know there's some danger to that, but I don't think it's a, a difficult jump to make from the kind of restoration of the human image that we see in Ephraim and Theodore um, mm-hmm. to the kind of thing that we talk about when we explore apocatastasis mm-hmm. or apocatastasis. I mean, it's... it's. Um, I don't really speak Greek. I just kind of say things. So I don't pronounce things. Uh, you can call it Liturculus. I'll call it Laterculus or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll mess it up. I don't know if you have uh, met or spoken with or read the work of uh, Father Aidan Kimmel, but uh, he's very, very, um, very much um, about apocatastasis. Yeah, and big fans of Father about... Kimmel. We love Father Al. Great man. Okay, well, good, good. Um, we ran some interviews online between him and John Milbank, him and mm. I can't remember who all we spoke with, but uh, uh, Robin Perry um, and Douglas Campbell. And they were fascinating discussions. But um, uh, the first thing we needed to do was clear up how he was going to, as an American, pronounce apocatastasis. <laughs> I'm just going to say apocatastasis because I'm a, a barbarian. But I think that the issue, like we could say, you know, we today, contemporaries, we could say, you know, well, the human has this particular cosmological role, biblically mm-hmm. speaking, over this cosmos. That's why the cosmos has fallen, because man has fallen and man has this mm-hmm. particular role. We could talk about it as a uh, there's different ways we could de- express this role, but it's a particular role that has an impact on the whole cosmos. So we could we could argue, I think, that so goes man, so goes the cosmos. But it seems mm-hmm. like with Ephraim and with Theodore, at least based on reading this book, and you can correct me, it's really focused on the human image in particular and the relationship of the God-man to man. Is that fair? That is absolutely fair. Um, 
the thing is on precisely the same premises on which they build the, that picture. Um, you also, with no real um, shift or, or leap in logic at all, see its application to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden and the cross, right? How the cross recapitulates the, the tree of man's downfall uh, so that it becomes the tree of man's salvation. I mean, it's... And, so man might be seen to sum up the cosmos in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And consequently, that's where I think more academic work would need to be taken uh, on the the sort of connection between... Um, I'm going to make up a term, but naive restorationists and knowing restorationists. In other words, those yeah. who would speak in more originistic terms compared to those who would limit their language. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I wonder too also about the pastoral aspect of these things. I mean, you're a pastor. What do you, how does this impact what you do? I mean, you're in Britain, you're in the land of Theodore. So how does, and your church, is it named after Theodore of Tarsus also? Of course it is, yes. Yeah. Okay, it's good. So you've got the the whole nine yards, but to, to what degree? There seems to have been, at least as far as I understand, a historical tendency to reduce the gospel message to a kind of moralizing um, device. Mm -hmm. to To reduce it to, look, God sees everything you do. He knows everything you do. You can't hide from him. You better get in line or else... And when you mess up, you know, you come to the church and we can figure it out, right? And maybe for people that are, you know, knee deep in muck and uh, dying left and right and living terrible, miserable, short, uh, epouvantable lives, that's workable. But there seems to be a lot of, a lot of people seems to start to get upset when you break with that and you start to talk about other things. You know, they get scared because it's like, well, that's not what I was taught. That's not. You know, what about the, does, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Let me say that I, I mean, I'm excited to answer the kind of question you've just posed to me. I know that the Forms podcast is not about feeling and sentiment, but on the basis that I heard you admit to David Bentley Hart that you'd cried um, once. Oh, we love feeling and sentiment over here. Good, good. Then, then We're fully sentimental. In which case I'm going to go for it. The fact is, I feel utterly um, driven amidst my pastoral ministry by the kind of study I've made of Theodore of Tarsus. And I mean that very literally. Um, first of all, academic pursuits for me have never uh, been um, sort of isolated from the ministry, from the idea of, of a pastoral vocation. Um, but in very real terms, I I hit the ground, literally. I, I, I go from my house. I, I walk the streets. If I'm not doing dad stuff, uh, I walk the streets in my cassock. Um, that makes me visible. And I feel emboldened to do that, not just because of a sense of responsibility, but because of a sense that Theodore did it. Because of a sense that where I am in South Wales... Um, St. David did it, and Ilted, and, uh, you know, Tylo, and all of these wonderful Welsh saints. And if they could do it, so should I be. Um, now, that might sound like just sort of a romantic notion, and it probably is, but it also 
is quite timely in the sense that, you know, we live in a world that is utterly um, bereft of spiritual information in any authentic sense. And I hope that when I wear that cassock, when I am out there as a visible figure, I am as authentic and um, as I as I can possibly be. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, I hate airs and graces. I'm glad that my Byzantine cassock, you know, I, my Russian cassock, in fact, folds up. You know that, that I can roll the sleeves up because I'll happily garden <laughs> in it. Um, the these are necessary facets of the ministry, and you can well see Theodore doing precisely the same thing. Having said that, um, it also has the moral implications, or carries the moral implications you've already alluded to, because when you encounter people, they have expectations of really a Calvinistic kind of church, one yeah. that is not very attractive. There's an evangelical church um in Cardiff, I won't sort of say where precisely because, you know, listeners might hear and think I'm being critical, but, you know, as seems to be a thing here, there's a big, you know, poster meters in dimension um, that's visible from the street that talks about, you know, Christ dying to save us to the uttermost or something like that. Mm -hmm. And every time I see it, I can't help but think how many drivers see that per day and how to how many of those drivers does it mean a single thing? And the answer to that question no. is to the first half, probably hundreds, thousands to the second zero. It doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. because all of those words have, they, they carry so much uh, negative baggage and ultimately even with definition, they therefore are rendered meaningless. People don't have a clue what sin is but people do have a sense that their existential lives are dissonant with something i think you know you, the 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 welsh youth that um, mess up um the city center streets of cardiff on friday nights with the uh the remnants of their their binge drinking uh, aren't doing that because they're very happy with themselves yeah, you know, and and to walk among the people, those people or any people, and not to have to condemn anything, uh, as, as as distasteful as I might find that lifestyle, that's a personal thing. I'm not condemning them or anything. I'm simply there, and I hope I can do that because of an understanding of what, say, Christ did that is um, perpetuated through the work of somebody like Theodore of Tarsus and all of the early saints that tread this ground before me. So yeah, there are direct moral implications. And I think that they, what, what those implications are um, include hope mm-hmm. and, and uh, a sense that actually what we carry to the people is a true gospel and not, and not a list of, of moral judgments. You know, we're, we're coming towards the end of the allotted time. And when I look at the works of yours that have been published, that I've read, we have the Eastern Christian Approaches to Philosophy, was That's it, right. the title? Yep. We have the Orthodox Basics. We have the Theodore book. And I, I guess, you know, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to. I'll just speak for myself. And if you want to give a rejoinder, that's fine. 
So I grew up in the church and among Christian people, and I know that there's a lot of good work that gets done, you know, life-saving work, life-giving work. I know that for a lot of people, they're evangelical youth pastors, one of the only people that's going to show up to the hospital when the kid is sick, you know. I'm I'm very familiar with all of these details. But it just it's hard for me not to look at the state of the church and of the world and of what you just described in terms of these Christian statements meaning nothing and not see the religion in a, as wrecked essentially mm-hmm. as a, as a wreckage. And so something that I recognized in your work is this idea that we need to bring to people a new what is Christianity? Like, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? Who is God? These questions. Do you think, is that fair? Yeah, um, I think it is fair. I want to be cautious when I, when I say that, though, because my experience of sort of the evangelical uh, witness. It's not just that we look at the Catholic Church with all the abuses and the scandal. Look at the Orthodox yeah, yeah. Church with the war in Ukraine. We have all this stuff going on where our religion is just absurd. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make sense. People, it doesn't speak to people anymore. You know, if you were to go back 80 years, people would have been more, uh, I don't know, inured with a kind of cath or uh, uh, cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so it would have spoken to them on that level. But people today are not even culturally Christian. Right. So it's just this weird thing to them. And to me, that's an opportunity to represent the gospel without all the baggage. But I don't know if that's how the way that you see it, because you're, I mean, you're working, you know, concretely with your mission and with your parish and everything. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, audio will not express the. <laughs> we have full the, agreement. <laughs> we do, but with 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 genuine excitement, because, um, you know, we we can always bemoan the era in which we're born, but this is our era. And how can I possibly complain when I look at the, you know, the seventh century and a man who had to sort of flee his home, what, how many times before he ended up in the furthest reaches of, of civilization. And I think here I am in South Wales, I enjoy numerous luxuries that have hitherto been unknown. And, and all I have to do is attest to a compassionate, merciful, loving God who is personal, who actually is concerned with not just our well-being in a collective sense, but with our well-being as, as, as his individual children. And I think actually that shouldn't be too hard a message to convey, yeah. despite the best efforts of the institutions, whether they're evangelical, Catholic, Orthodox, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, to be honest, as as utterly uh, dark, and um, yeah, as as utterly dark as as our own, you know, post Christian era seems to be, I can see it as as an incredible sort of opportunity. I also see it as providential, and maybe this is I'm I'm overly I've taken Ruderu to the max. I've maxed out on Soloviev, right? But I right. just fully agree with him in lectures on God manhood you know, mm-hmm. about this historical problem of the the falling to of the church. Because to me, that's one of his insights that's the most poignant is this idea of the church facing collectively, historically, 
the same temptations of Christ, for example, for temporal power. Mm -hmm. But whereas Christ had victory, you know, the church has, in many cases, fallen to that temptation. And so you get Christendom and you get, you know, the Episcopal hierarchy uh, collaborating with uh, political forces of repression, violence, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, what do you think about that? I, I find it a very appealing notion. Um, and I don't doubt for one moment its cosmic potential. Or Father um, Sergi about the history rendering a judgment, right? That the yeah. judgment against the sort of quote unquote Christian uh, nostalgic period that we have in mind, it's actually has been rendered judgment against. It's been judged, you know, and mm. it's been judged unworthy. I just don't know how far. Yeah, I, I, I would love to actually have a, a, another conversation about this, not least because I think it, it is, um, it's worthy of a, a deeper exploration, um, mm. deeper than I've given it. Because I believe in the premise, the, the fundamental premise um, that motivates Soloviev to, to even think that way. I believe that, um, you know, history um, can, can be deployed in, you know, to divine ends that way. I believe that the church can uh, reflect back, much like a great work of art. In the fullness of time. I mean, think about Christ coming into the context of, uh, the first century, you know, mm. and that's the fullness of time in a way right. the Greeks had already, and this is something that really like separates, I think our tradition from a lot of other traditions is that we're willing to embrace that fullness of time concept. We're like the Greeks are essential to Christianity just as Judaism is, you know, mm. you, there's no Christianity without the Greeks. Sorry. It doesn't, you don't have any right. gospel without those Gentiles, you know? <laughs> Even if we're going to rhetorically, you know, inveigh against them as Ephraim does, but it's like it's part of the whole bringing to fruition this this messianic apocalyptic revelation, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm just off kilter, but that's that's to me the element that's the most missing is the apocalyptic. We got to bring back the apocalypse. Do you have any thoughts about the apocalypse? <laughs> I do, and I think. Um... It's a big motivator for me. And if you could actually see the titles on the books behind me, um, almost all of them are about uh, uh, apocalypse, uh, particularly as conceived in the uh, early Middle Ages, because it's a huge concern. And what it means has great implications for uh, us in our lives, the way we live our lives, by which I do not mean anything conventional in terms of, you know, the, the sheep and the goats, you know, in terms of, you know, how people conceive of judgment but rather just how things find their consummation. And, and that is, uh, I think, uh, a very early medieval or late antique concern. So bring it back to Theodore and to the, the end of the book. What, frame for us Theodore's relationship to the apocalypse. This actually motivated my, the, the research I took up almost immediately upon completing that. And it is the idea that history itself at that time, the writing of history, that is, had, had, um, an essentially eschatological purpose, meaning it was interested in apocalypse. It was interested in the consummation of the fulfillment of all things. Where did time lead? Time led to the New Jerusalem. The end of time, I think I talk in the book about the uh, Sexitates Mundi, the six ages of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a disagreement among fathers as to which age we might have been in at a given time. And Augustine, of course, in the City of God, uh, very much um, 
shoots down any literal interpretation of thousand year ages and all of that kind of yeah. stuff. So it's, it's a concern, but from Theodore's point of view, and, and his seems to be a very sort of a mature take on it, meaning, you know, he, 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 he would accept what Augustine has to say about eschewing um, a literal interpretation of thousand years. But Theodore is about drawing history to an end, which is an end that, uh, that entails restoration. Right. And that's kind of harkens back then to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago in terms of what kind of restoration, you know, one of the two. But um, his is very much, uh, you know, uh, you know, a restoration of consummation, that which humanity goes through across the ages, finds its fulfillment ultimately in this sort of paradisical day, this eighth day to to steal from origin um to to say that actually you know yeah our our fulfillment is in the font you know and that has to do also with the the latter colors and the whole calendrical dispute in britain and his own calendrical study in constantinople right this the calendar the church calendar right uh has to do i mean I think that's a, a place where these all these things converge, right? I mean, we're we're, we're running up here on uh, on Easter as we're speaking. I think it's going to be uh, just something that's on everybody's mind as we're going into Holy Week. That this conception of the end of of time and the apocalyptic revelation of God in Christ. It's it's at this sort of we're at the, we're nearing the summit, so to speak, of the 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 cycle. And it's interesting also to think about how radically different this is from the anacyclosis, you know, from this just sort of repetitive, uh, temporal, uh, demonic, diabolical cycle of uh, society just constantly churning. And that's something that a lot of Christians have taken on as part of their common sense, right? And I, I, I think that's also something we have to break from. I, I think one antidote to that, um, uh, uh, yeah, to, to that error, is the experience of of uh, Pascha in the Orthodox context. I mean, because no, nothing speaks of consummation better than our first shouts of uh, Christos vos Kreise. You know, it's it's it. You know, to to proclaim that Christ has risen. Well, I appreciate your time, Father. I'm happy to have you come on again and talk about things in the future. I know you have a lot of things you've been working on. Uh, is there anything you want to tell the people about before we wrap up? Uh, only to maybe keep their eyes on orthodoxexchange.net. Um, it's simply uh, the repository of the things that I'm working on. Um, that includes my academic work, but, but equally uh, some of the things that I'm trying to uh, produce in order to get into people's hands. So the catechism book is one such um, is one such piece, uh, but there are more forthcoming. So uh, we we've started a series. I say we. I won't say who. I'm you have about. a podcast. You have the. I didn't even know this. You have the Orthodox podcast. Yeah. Under <laughs> my roof. Yes. Wow. Okay. So I'm gonna have to subscribe to this. Why didn't you tell me about this before? Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm a bit understated. You're too humble. <laughs> this is this is this uh, piety stuff is really. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to that. 
Good, good. Yesterday's uh, the the one that's just gone up is is of uh, I think you'll find of interest, and I've got a second conversation with that guy, um, Joshua Brown, um, oh, coming up. So yeah, yeah. And if you ever come back to uh, to France and you're in the southern reaches, let me know. I will certainly.